Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. This week, we're breaking down A Moral Star Part 2, the season one tenth episode of Star Trek Prodigy. We'll summarize the plot of the episode and share our observations. We'll end the podcast with the most recent Star Trek news. Before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched this episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis for A Moral Star Part 2. Okay. As the USS Protostar heads towards a Starfleet base, Solemn discovers the Protocore is no longer on the ship. Gwen attempts to subdue her father, but he is able to overcome her efforts and commands the evil hollow Janeway to prevent her from making any more challenges. Solemn changes course to return to Tars Lamora to reclaim the Protocore. Back on Tars Lamora, Dahl and Zero gather together the formerly enslaved miners to take them to the Diviner ship, the Rev-12, to escape the planet. Charged with repairing the Rev-12's engines, Jacob Pog orders Rocktop to secure the door to the engine room as they are under attack by the Diviner's mechanical henchmen, the Watchers. However, when the repairs seem too complicated for Pog, Rocktop suggests a solution which convinces Pog they should switch roles. <laughs> Rocktop successfully repairs the engines, which restores gravity to the planet. As Zero attempts to rescue a young Cation, a watcher severs one of his mechanical arms before Dahl destroys the henchman. They notice the protostar has returned to the planet. Dahl, Zero, and other miners arrive at the Rev-12 just in time to save Rocktalk and Pog from another assault by the Watchers and Dreadnought, who was attempting to retrieve the Protostar core. While the miners put down the Watchers, the Cation uses her retractable claws to slice off Dreadnought's head. Still, despite their heroics, Solomon is able to locate the protocore inside Murph and beam it up to the protostar. The ship then leaves orbit to head for a Starfleet base. The Rev-12 takes off after them in pursuit. On the protostar, Gwen works to engage security locks in order to lower their shields so Dahl and his crew can board and retake the ship. Solomon orders Janeway to stop her, but it is now revealed evil Holloway Janeway was actually reprogrammed by Gwen so that she only followed Starfleet aligned orders. Janeway incapacitates Solemn and he begs his daughter not to scuttle his plan because it was the only way to save their people. He tells her he was sent from the future to save their people from destruction. Gwen freezes Janeway's program to give her father a chance to explain his claim. Using a holodeck program, he shows a current picture of their homeworld, also called Solemn. The visual shows a thriving, advanced civilization. Then he shows the planet 50 years into the future. Now the planet is a desolate place that displays signs of cataclysmic destruction. 
Solemn claims that the first contact by a Federation ship during the current timeline sparked a civil war that led to an apocalypse 50 years later. Solemn claims their only option is to destroy Starfleet before it has a chance to plant the seeds leading to their destruction. Her father tells her he has outfitted the ship with a weapon that can corrupt Starfleet systems and turn them against each other and eventually destroy Starfleet. Gwen tells him it is wrong to trade one tragedy for another. She realizes the protostar cannot be returned to Starfleet. However, Solemn remains fully committed to his mission. Dahl enters the holographic program, but is quickly incapacitated by Solemn. However, Zero arrives and comes out of his protective shell, knowing that whoever looks upon him will go mad. Dahl tries to shield Gwen and warns her not to look up at Zero, but she inadvertently looks at the reflection in his comm badge. A log by Janeway states Solemn was returned to Tyrus Lamora to live out the rest of his life as the planet's sole inhabitant. Unlike her father, Gwen does not go insane, but she does lose her memories of what happened on the holodeck. Janeway observes how each individual has evolved to um, more fully realize their potential and how they have come together to become a functional Starfleet crew. Surprisingly, the episode ends with a scene from the bridge of the USS Dauntless, commanded by none other than Vice Admiral Catherine Janeway. An officer, Ascensia, informs Janeway she has detected the protostar's warp signature. Janeway orders her crew to set course for the last known location of that signature. The episode ends with Janeway exclaiming, I'm coming, Chakotay. Mm, mm, yeah, mm. but that that leaves a whole lot, you know, for us to be thinking about until those new episodes get, oh, get yeah, out there. Oh yeah, definitely. But it was a very it was a very good end to that ten episode arc. I have to say that. Oh, I agree. So, Gary, let's just move into the discussion. All right. Of the episode. All right, you up first. So, the second half of a moral star delivered in so many wonderful ways. Of course, the art department continues to be stellar with its detailed and aesthetically engaging animation. And I never tire of hearing Prodigy's theme song, which rates as one of the best of all the series. Not Star Trek Enterprise. Well, as you know, I cringe every time I hear that theme song. It's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so concerning the 10-episode story arc of Prodigy, as we predicted last week, we now see the Protostar crew are no longer in an individualistic survivor mode as they were when they first escaped Tars Lamora. Each one of them has learned an important lesson from their adventures. That new wisdom serves them well as they're finally able to stand on their own as a true Starfleet team. They're a team that still has dangers ahead as the series enters its mid-season hiatus. The best thing about this episode was watching the team overcome every setback that was put in their way. 
The Diviner and Dreadnought did everything they could to leave Dahl and the others in a very compromised situation. In fact, it was a death sentence that they left them with. That's right. With no gravity, the RAV-12 disabled, and the Watchers turned back on a little while after the Diviner had turned them off. Yes. It looked as if the Protostar crew had been outmaneuvered once again. But in spite of all that, Dahl and Zero were able to free the unwanted and give them the ability to communicate with one another for the first time. Rock Talk was able to use her newly developed skills as an engineer to repair the Rev-12, reestablishing gravity and restoring the shields. And with the aid of the unwanted, they disarmed Dreadnought and took off to rescue Gwen. Another highlight of the episode had to be the big reveal of the Diviner's mission. His deep-seated hatred of everything Starfleet had been presented as irrational up to this point because there was no explanation justifying his enmity. Whenever asked, he would merely growl contemptuous epithets and deny Starfleet sought peace. The Diviner would paint a contradictory picture to what we know to be true. But this time, he told the tale of destruction of Solemn, his homeworld. Although the planet was prosperous at present, he told Gwen that would disappear in 50 years. He said it was initiated by a first contact experience with, star, with a Starfleet ship in the future. The Diviner describes a conflict that broke out between those who wanted to adopt Federation principles of egalitarianism and those who wished to see all power on Solemn remain in the hands of a small group of elites. The civil war that sprung out of it was destructive and would end the Vatnakat as a species. Attempting to justify his wrath toward the interplanetary organization, the Diviner contended, Starfleet lit the fire and left us to burn. Like a cross between the Terminator and the Trojan horse, the Diviner time-traveled from that future to capture and use the Protostar as the deliverer of a sinister program designed to infect all Starfleet systems that could come in contact with the ship. The infectious program would spread from one Starfleet ship to another until it led to total destruction of the Federation. This was the, a fitting payoff after all the buildup that this, this storyline has been teased throughout the entire season. Yeah, and as the Diviner rationalizes action, Gwen is willing to listen to this reasoning. She freezes Hollow Janeway's programming and chooses not to drop the shields to allow her crewmates to board the Protostar as planned. However, this time, Gwen is less vulnerable to her father's arguments than she would have been before her adventures in the Delta Quadrant. The scenes between Gwen and her father specifically are, are really compelling. Mm -hmm. I mean, his all-consuming hatred has painted him as an irrational fanatic. All season long, mm -hmm. we've seen him manipulate her using the fact that they are the last of the Vodnikot. And he has repeatedly reminded her that they are alone in the galaxy. The, the Diviner has cultivated in Gwen a longing for her people, 
her, her culture and a home she's never seen. Yet, that longing effectively has pulled on her heart time and time again. Once again, after losing control of the protostar back to Gwen, the diviner changes strategy and confides in her. If he had shared the entire plan with Gwen before she was abducted by Dahl, she might have been swayed by his ration, rationale and gone along with the mission. However, her time spent aboard the protostar bonding with others, Janeway's influences, and the principles of the Federation and Starfleet have changed her into someone with a different perspective than her father. She displays this clearly when she tells him, you can't trade one tragedy for another. Right, right. And there is a great deal under the surface of this very complicated relationship. It's manifested in direct and not so direct ways. It's ironic when Gwen uses the only thing my father ever gave me, her heirloom, as a weapon against him, and even more so when he uses them as handcuffs to restrain her. However, Gwen comes prepared to respond to her father's treachery. Her upgrades to Hollow Janeway allow the hologram to become solid enough to restrain the diviner. That's an intriguing development with a potential usefulness in the future. So it stands to reason that Zero would play a part in the victory over the, the Diviner. He's been their greatest weapon all along. Likewise, having a being capable of making those around him go mad simply by looking at him, Zero had to be a tool for the retribution against the Diviner's evil acts. First, because the Medusan had hidden at the trauma he experienced, having been used by the, the, the diviner to torture others. Secondly, because Zero would want to punish the person responsible for forcing him to inflict great pain on the innocent. Nevertheless, Gwen's memory loss leaves the crew unaware of the danger they may be bringing the Starfleet. If she regains her memory about the danger, the protostar presents to the Federation and Starfleet, will they be able to deactivate the viral weapon the Diviner installed? Yeah. So a moral star part two is a satisfying place to pause the show for a few months and go back to the conclusion of Discovery's fourth season. It tied up several major loose threads and left others dangling to pique our interest in how these events will play out for the second half of season one. So, Gary, you know, I really, really enjoyed this season. And now uh, we wanted to take the time out to talk about our favorite episode. You know, overall, it was really strong. Uh, but, and it was hard to choose, but why don't you go first? Oh, that's right. That's right. When it's hard to choose, let me go first. <laughs> All right. Um, I, after looking at the 10, I, I had two favorites that I wanted to but I chose one of them, and that would be Kobayashi. Okay. And if you know me, that may be because it's right on brand for me. Right. I mean, yes, it's fan service. Yes, it was great to hear all those famous lines from Spock and Odo and Scotty and Uhura delivered once again. And yes, it was great to hear Gates McFadden deliver new dialogue. Yeah. 
And also seeing the bridge of the Enterprise 1701D rendered in that beautiful animation Mm -hmm. was a thing of true, true beauty as well. However, for me, the main thing that, that I take away from this episode is seeing Dahl succeed and grow in his huge and significant manner when he conquered the the Kobayashi Maru simulation. Mm -hmm. Well, we we don't get the confident and capable Captain Dahl that we've seen in this two-parter without the actions that he takes and the lessons he learns in that episode. I agree. I truly enjoyed that episode. But I chose another one. Uh, And actually, we both really, really enjoyed this episode. We did, we did, and I let you talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Let me, okay. So, this, the episode we're talking about is Time Amok. Episode 8 featured an engaging and entertaining story which demonstrated the importance of teamwork and diversity. With the exception of Murph, Using their diverse <laughs> skills, talents, and experience. And, 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 and actually, Murph turned out to be totally useless because that that uh, Pro Star core was taken out of him without any kind of issue. Well, yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> so anyway, using their diverse skills and talents, each crew member contributed, contributed to the solution to a crisis that threatened the lives of the crew and the safety of the ship. In that episode, Dahl once again demonstrated growth and maturity when he admitted to Janeway they were not Starfleet cadets and had stolen the protostar. His confession was a necessary step in in the continuation of his maturation process. Since you cannot build a relationship based on lies, trust requires transparency and thought and deed. However, I was most impressed with the maturation of Rock Talk being the youngest member of the crew, Rock Talk often felt as if she had little to contribute to the crew with the exception of her superior strength and size. Alone within her slow-moving time loop, she experienced both helplessness and hopelessness. Yet, through a recorded message, Gwen was able to convince her otherwise. It took many years within her time loop but Rotok was able to gain the scientific theory and technical knowledge she needed to she needed and apply it to save the ship and its crew. In the end, this provided her with a new sense of self-assurance and self-worth. This more mature Rotok is now better able to be an equal partner in addressing problems as they arise. This was demonstrated in the latest episode of Prodigy when Rotok uh, has the confidence to speak up for herself when Pog initially relegates her to trying to keep the, rot- the watchers at bay. By skillfully articulating a possible solution to repairing the engines, she is able to convince Pog she can be trusted to get the job done. When she succeeds, we are as pleased as she is in her accomplishment as she once again proves herself to be a valuable member of the crew. So Gary, who can't relate to that? For me, Time Amok was indeed the feel-good episode of the first half of the season. I agree with you because it was showing them working together in spite of the fact that they were separated through time, different time periods. Um, but, you know, uh, th- <laughs> let me say, say this about uh, Pog. 
I think Pog's reaction in this last episode was more at an acknowledgement of his incapability to, to fix anything. I mean, he's more like a he's more like a like, like a neighborhood mechanic than he is really an engineer. Yeah, yeah, more of a mechanic. And, I agree. Too. And I mean, he finds solutions sometimes that aren't always the most elegant ones. Right. What Rock Talk now has is a skill and an intelligence that she's able to not only decipher the problem, but come up with a clear solution that she's capable of fix of, 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 of going through, actually executing with expertise. And that's yeah. different than, than he was. Yeah, he really she really understands the scientific theory behind how all these things Exactly. Work. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. I think and I think that's that's the really exciting and unique um, new wrinkle to her. That's right. So let's go on now and talk about questions that we have for the second half of season one of Star Trek Prodigy. First off, how is this weapon activated that was placed on board the Protostar, the infectious viral program that the Diviner has put there? Yeah, and what happened to Jacody and his crew? Yeah, I know. You know, I really am anxious to find it out. And the way Janeway says, I'm coming with Jacody, the way she delivered that line was there's something more between them no, now. No, <laughs> no, no, no. If, J- if, if, if Kate Mulgrew has her way, it's going to still be the collegiate professional relationship oh, that they had before. I think the way she no, delivered that line, no, no, she no. like she was I, really concerned. Well, yes, I think she would be concerned for a crew member, crewmate that she had a long-term relationship with. They were in the Delta Quadrant alone, you know, with all the other crew members on the vo- on Voyager. They were stranded. But I don't think there's anything more to it than that, mm, Adele. Okay. <laughs> anyway, the, the next question is, will Starfleet venture to the planet Solom despite the risks of doing so much harm as revealed by the Diviner? Well, not only Starfleet, but uh, will Gwen go? Because now Gwen, Gwen used to think, oh, they're the only ones, the Diviner and her. And now she knows, wait, Solom does exist now. Does and she, there are all these people. Does she remember that? I mean, oh, right, I mean, right. Does she remember what that? What does she remember from that conversation? Right, she doesn't, she probably I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either, because it, it depends. She may not like, even like remember. At, like at what point yeah. did she remember? She may not you know? remember any of that stuff that Diviner yeah, that, revealed. That, that's and, solemn, that there are people right. there, and that it's a people, thriving civilization. Exactly, exactly. So she's not alone, or yeah. there are people or not. Yeah, she alone. may still believe. That's true. She may still believe what she believed before this episode, yep. which was that they were the last two. Yeah. And now she's the last sane one. Right, <laughs> man. That's that's like a cold. Ex, that's a cold sentence. You know, yeah. you're crazy, and you're all alone on that awful, right. I, awful planet. Yeah, yeah. But he well. deserved it after all the evil that he had done. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to the next question, which is: Is the Diviner's story about civil war breaking out amongst the Vanakat the full story? Well, I mean, obviously, you you gotta assume that he's talking about the annihilation of the planet, but he's talking about the power structure. Right. And they're being they're being attacked by a you know, a rebellion that's trying to bring down the what the power structure that he's a part of. 
on that planet. He doesn't want a democracy or an, or an equitable system where everybody has a voice in the government. Right. We need to hear from somebody else's point of view. Yeah, yeah. 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 He's part of the group of people that want to keep things exactly the way they were. That's right. But, you know, when you think about it, um, if you look at the, that first contact, there is there could be some um, strength to his argument when you think about how there's no strength. No, to no, the wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Of let's destroy Starfleet because they're no, 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 no. Us. I am not talking about that, but how the contact with us now just because they are a highly advanced technology um, civilization, but they had no engagement whatsoever with anybody off their planet. So, the, as he says in the in the in the episode. They were comfortable thinking of themselves all alone in the galaxy. But he's being told that by the people of the future. I mean, he he's a person of the future. He doesn't really know what that first contact was like. All he knows are the stories that would have been passed down to him through this power structure. So I don't know if we can take his version of it as, you know, you know to... to be able to say what actually happened with that first contact. So hopefully that will be revealed, you know, later on, you know. The one the, the one thing I think I would say that fits your argument is the fact that when you see other alien races that are, that are we know of that become alliances or become part of the federation like the Klingons right. at one point that they they don't change their political structure. No. They're not and the federation doesn't ask them to do that. That's right. They don't become any more democratically you know leaning at all. So I don't know why he what what it's obviously the clear that a small power elite were afraid of losing power because they had because a a, a rebellion had grown up being exposed to new ideas and new ways right. of trying to seek um, a more egalitarian lifestyle. That's right. So let's go on and look at, think about another question that might be one that, that we have to see if it's going to be answered in the next 10 episodes. Will Dahl be re- reunited with his parents or find out what happened to them? Yeah, that, you know, he, he really does want to know his parents or at least find out, you know, where they are. So yeah, I mean, we we've been talking a great deal about the diviner and Gwen and them being the only ones of their kind. It's more of a situation because with Dahl, because Dahl doesn't even know what he is. Yeah, he doesn't know who his people are. Right, yeah. and and from what we've seen in the engagement with other people, they don't recognize his species. That's either. right. We also want to know, will Dahl and his crew be able to retain the USS Protostar, although never officially commissioned to do so? I'm going to say that's going to be a big no. They may, <laughs> find, they may find something else for them to ride in. But, but I don't, I, you don't get I, I don't think they technically get, Right, right. I don't no. think they keep the technologically advanced, you know, really, really, really fast ship. Yep. 
No, either the protostar is going to be destroyed or something because first of all there's no record of any type of uh technology like this is the you know right. nobody ever comments on this and the show is not called the the star trek protostar it's called star trek prodigy so so we don't have to keep this ship right I mean, it's about the it's about the crew it's, it's not about, the, about it's not about the ship although yeah. the ship is cool the ship is cool i would hate to lose it but yeah i'm 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 I got to agree with you on that one. And then finally, why does a hologram need a cup of coffee? Now, I know that, Gary, I know this bothers you more this than it bothers, bothers me. Hell I, out of me. I just think that they're just trying to make her seem more lifelike. So every once in a while, she looks like she's drinking a cup of coffee. But yeah, it is kind of ridiculous. Well, you know, it was it was a, a cute um, callback to... Janeway, because that was her thing, right? right? I mean, you would see her come to the bridge on on the the, the changeover and crew, yeah. and she would immediately need a cup of coffee. She'd go to she she may go to to the to the mess hall, or she may come in with it. But now that we actually have the living, breathing Vice Admiral right. Catherine Janeway with a real cup of coffee that actually is <laughs> swallowed by a human being. Right. I just, you know, I, I think that, I thought that was cute. I just wondering, you know, maybe there was something else that she could do, you know. You're, well, pro, you're, you're changing the program, you can change that. That's what I'm <laughs> so now let's get into some Star Trek news. As reported by Deadline, here's a summary of the Star Trek news released on February 1st during the Television Critics Association Conference. Much of this news has been previously reported. A new offshoot, Star Trek Starfleet Academy, is in development at CBS Studios, an Alice Kurtzman studio-based secret hideout for the Viacom CBS streamer, sources said. Sharing a name with the late 1990s video game, the series is set among the College of cadets mentored for leadership roles in the United Federation of Planets Space Force. I, I, you know, as a longtime Star Trek fan, I wish they would just go ahead and do this, yep. and then we don't have to hear about it anymore. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, at one point, the original uh, animated series was going to be a Starfleet Academy, Academy st- yep storyline and yep. that got switched when they were able to get a few more of the the original actors from the TV show. Right. Um that has been pitched that was what was being pitched when they ended up with the Calvin Universe storyline that they were supposed to be cadets in the academy. And I, I mean, think they were and they talked to be cadets to, before they did Enterprise. They were supposed to be cadets. There were a ton the, the show they were looking to to kick off a Paramount network, the UPN was supposed to be a Starfleet Cadet, Acad- yeah, Academy, Academy show. Yeah. I mean, so th- this has been talked about for almost as long as the series has been around. You know, 50, yeah. the franchise has been around for 55 years. I think it's been talked about for at least 49 of those oh, 55 yeah. years. So let's just do this. Then we can see it, get done. People can like it or don't like it. And then we don't have to talk about it anymore. Right, right. <laughs> All right. Um, reportedly, the, going back to the news... Reportedly, Abstentia uh, co-creator Gaia Viola is currently working on a take for the project. 
with the long gestating Star Trek spinoff Section 31 starring Michelle Yeoh expected to get a pickup soon. Starfleet Academy is believed to be the next Star Trek development um, production in Pipeline and it will be pitched to Paramount Plus shortly in a hope that it'll get going in the next year, some sources say. <laughs> so, expecting to take flight by 2023, Star Section 31, a spinoff of Star Trek Discovery, features the Emperor Philippa Giorgio character played by global film star Michelle Yao. And that's the reason why, that's part of the reason why I'm sure it hasn't seen the light of day yet. Because she hasn't stopped working. She's busy. She is busy. Yep. The upcoming Strange New Worlds had its own virtual TCA panel almost four months before its long-anticipated launch. Um, Co-showrunner Akiva Goldsman confirmed a connection to the infamous Khan as played by Ricardo Montalban in the original Star Trek series episode and the 1982 movie Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. According to Goldman, the character Leon Noonien Singh, portrayed by Christine Chong, is related to Khan for sure. We don't want to bring folks into the show um, to be splashy, Goldman said. We want to dig deeply into the characters that are part of our ensemble. I'm not sure what that means, <laughs> right. but we're going to find out, I guess, in a couple of weeks. So besides Goldsman, the Strange New World panel featured Kurtzman, executive producer Henry Alonzo Myers, plus actors Anson Mount, and an in-costume Ethan Peck, Rebecca Romaine, and Celia Rose Gooding. Peck was in full costume because he had joined the virtual panel from the set of SNW, which has already begun shooting its second season. The SNW panel also screened a clip from the May 5th premiering episode, which has already been renewed for a second season, as was indicated by Adele saying they were shooting it now. <laughs> the extended glimpse um, at the show gave a reveal of Grammy winner Gooding as Cadet Neota Uhura and of the reluctance of the character to consider a permanent role for herself in Starfleet. That, that seems as if they're... they're kind of channeling the reality that was Nichelle Nichols oh, yeah. on, the, on the original series. Definitely. Of course, the barrier-breaking Uhura was played by Nichelle Nichols in the original Star Trek show and its subsequent big screen iterations. Speaking on the first day of Black History Month, 2022. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> yes, Gooding said that she wanted to see SNW build upon the presence Uhura had in the original Star Trek and be able to display even more complexities for a black woman than was possible on the network TV back in the 1960s. Did black women have complexities in the 1960s? <laughs> yeah. I mean, because there weren't a whole lot of them on television. I know that's right. Anyway, Oscar winner Goldman penned and directed the Strange New World's premiere episode with the story by Goldman, Kurtzman, and Jenny Lamette. Goldman, Kurtzman, and Lamette serve as Star Trek Strange New World's executive producers, in addition with Alonzo Myers, 
Heather Caden, uh, Frank Syracuse, John Weber, Rod Roddenberry, uh, Trevor Roth, <laughs> and Aaron Beyer. The new series is produced by CBS Studios, Secret Hideout, and Roddenberry Entertainment. Yeah, that's apparently legally they have to say that. Okay. <laughs> And the last bit of news we have is on the fact that there is a Strange New World poster. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's really cool. Yeah. So on February 1st, Paramount Plus tweeted out the new series poster for Strange New Worlds. The poster features a rendering of Captain Christopher Pike on his horse, gazing up at the USS Enterprise and worlds beyond Earth. Yeah, I remember hearing some friends... And fans talking about, yeah, this harks back to Roddenberry's comment about Star Trek being, um, you know, wagon train for, to the stars. And I said, no, it doesn't. I mean, <laughs> it, for most of the 55 years, you know, with the exception of when we had season two of Discovery, the two things we knew <laughs> about Captain Pike was that he had gone to Talos Four and he had grown up in the Mojave Desert and had um and had a horse, horse named Tahoe, for yep. God's sake. So he's and he loved that horse and he loved that horse. Yeah, and that was it. Yep. <laughs> so that's what that poster is reflecting. Yep. Anyway, the they the the tagline for the poster was the frontier is waiting. And I think that's a fitting tribute to that the character of the of Pike, as well as the where we are in regards to this prequel. Once again, talking about where um, the adventures going out in the space, exploring that's right, strange new worlds. <laughs> so, in closing, as you know, the second half of season one of Star Trek: Prodigy will not be broadcast until later this year. Yeah, we don't know yet when that's going to happen. However, we are excited that the second half of season four of Star Trek Discovery will begin streaming on February 10th. So we'll be back next week with a review of episode eight. In addition, we would like to remind you to share a link of Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. Until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter at Star Trek AOD. Facebook at Star Trek AOD, and our website, Star Trek AOD at .net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. Also, email the show at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.